The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In a few weeks, Gilbert Murray wrote, in August, English and German will have done each other cruel and irreparable wrongs. The blood of those we love will lie between us. We shall hear stories of horrible suffering. Atrocities will be committed by a few bad or stupid people on both sides and will be published and distorted and magnified. It will be hard to avoid them. That was Hugh Strawn delivering a lecture on the First World War. You'll get to hear the talk in full in this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Last autumn, we ran a day of lectures on the First World War at Bristol's M-Shed Museum. Among the speakers was Hugh Strawn, Chichely Professor of History of War at the University of Oxford and one of Britain's leading historians of the conflict. The title of his talk was The Ideas of 1914. Before we hear what Professor Strawn had to say, I'd like to quickly remind you that our April issue is still on sale. It's a Tudor special where we delve into the downfall of Anne Boleyn, consider how the Spanish Armada might have succeeded, and sit down for a Tudor-style breakfast. Plus, we explore life in a Roman home, revisit a key tank battle in the Second World War, and discover some of the finest Norman churches. Our April issue is on sale now, in all good news agents, and of course, in our many digital formats. And now back to Bristol's M-Shed and Professor Hugh Strawn. The departure point for this is that um, where we have got to, it seems to me, in the debate about the origins of the First World War uh, is somewhat paradoxical. Uh, when I was a student, um, only just the other day, of course, uh, the orthodoxy was that um, Fritz Fischer was right, uh, that Germany uh, had caused the war, um, that the outbreak of the war uh, was not just probable, um, that it was possibly even inevitable. Um, and today we've reached a situation where that argument um, looks increasingly wobbly. Um, and in particular, unless you're in 
Germany, uh, where on the whole Fritz Fischer is still regarded in remarkably orthodox terms, on the whole, few people today buy into a full-blown version of the Fischer thesis. A thesis that incorporates the idea of German war guilt, not only in terms of the short-term origins of the war, not only in terms of what happened in July 1914, but also over the long term. Um, uh, uh, tracing events right back to 1871 um, and the unification of Germany itself. Instead of all that, we've got an image of Germany as an irresponsible power, uh, playing fast and loose with the risk of major war, uh, particularly, of course, when it issued the blank check to Austria-Hungary on the 5th of July 1914, um, and then accused of even more irresponsibility uh, when, during the course of the subsequent weeks, it failed to monitor how Vienna decided to suspend that check or to cash it, um, particularly, of course, up until uh, Austria-Hungary's issuing of the ultimatum to Serbia on the 23rd of July itself. In other words, if Germany caused the First World War, it did so only through risk-taking rather than through calculation. If Germany is guilty of anything, it is more guilty of incoherent government and incompetent leadership than long-term malign intent. Um, the failure of Marxism um, has also left us floundering because many of the long-term explanations for the outbreak of the war revolved around the inter intertwining of imperialism and capitalism. Pre-1914 international socialists imagined that when the war came, it would be a war of aggression, a war fought by great powers to secure territory and empire. Uh, Fischer's attention to war aims uh, during the course of the First World War, his first book, Griff, Nacht der Weltmacht, uh, was precisely devoted to that sort of Marxist analysis, that this was a war about securing empire. But today, all that looks unsustainable at many levels. First of all, because there is very little continuity at governmental levels, even within Germany, between pre-war thinking and the September 1914 War Aims Programme, drawn up by the German Chancellor Theodore von Beckmann-Holweg. Secondly, uh, because that whole emphasis on Germany's war aims neglects the fact that war is a reactive process. You need two to have a war because it is a reciprocal activity. And thirdly, the fact that no other nation had clearly articulated war aims before 1914, except, of course, for Austria-Hungary, which had thought pretty clearly about its desire to crush Serbia and to resolve its Balkan problems. Now, what all this means is that when we look at the July crisis today, we tend to go look at it in very old-fashioned terms. We look at it in terms of diplomatic documents and the reaction of one capital to another, exactly as historians looked at it in the 1930s. Uh, we no longer deploy as much as we used to uh, James Joel's uh, unspoken assumptions. It's become a story of national interest as understood by government ministers. And we see the July crisis in terms that are really quite similar to those uh, which uh, pertain for 19th century international crises. 
Uh, we look, of course, at the earlier crises in the decade leading up to the First World War, uh, those involving Morocco and Bosnia. And we also see it uh, because Poincaré, uh, the French president in particular, saw it as the culmination of, if you like, a Cold War with two European alliance blocs uh, lined up against each other, trying at one level to contain their hostility rather than to promote it. And finally, of course, we see it as the third Balkan war, uh, a war about the Balkans, uh, particularly between Austria, Hungary and Serbia. Now, if you see it in all those old fashioned terms, then by rights, this should have been a war, a cabinet war, a war of German, unif like the wars of German unification. And what I want to talk about today is that actually, of course, we know this war is very different. This war is not a cabinet war. It is not a 19th century war. We're confronted, if we use comparatively old-fashioned diplomatic history as a way of looking at the July crisis, we're then confronted with the enormity of what actually unfolds in August and September 1914. Because within weeks, the First World War has become a profoundly modern war, a template of the 20th century. A war waged not by comparatively small armies orchestrated by government ministers, but a war waged by armies reflective of whole societies. And we may now accept that the peoples of war, the peoples, sorry, the peoples of Europe did not go to war enthusiastically, but the point remains that they went. They may have accepted that obligation out of a sense of duty rather than out of, sense, out of a sense of uh, crowd cheering and uh, uh, genuine uh, patriotic uh, vigor but they went. And they did so not so much because of Serbia or Belgium or Poland or Alsace-Lorraine or any of the other contested issues. These, after all, would have been the objectives if this had been a cabinet war. Instead, they went to war mouthing what I've called in the title of this talk, Big Ideas. This is a war for civilization against German Kultur a war against militarism for liberalism, a war for international law um, and for international order. And those are ideas which cross national boundaries in their claims to universality. The subsequent wars of the 20th century and even arguably of the 21st century have been shaped and legitimated by just that sort of thinking, by ideologies uh, rather than by frontier disputes or even primarily by nationalism. And that shift is speedy. And explaining it seems to me a major historiographical challenge. If we debunk Fritz Fischer, uh, if we debunk Lenin, Marx, um, and uh, socialism as a way of explaining uh, what is going on, then we have a problem. Because suddenly we do have a raft of big ideas emerging very quickly and being incorporated almost immediately in public debates. So how do we explain this? Let me begin, I have begun I suppose, uh, let me begin uh, with um, how I see Europe in 1914. And that is certainly a continent determined by nationality and nationalism. Both those things will become important when the war breaks out. But also a, 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 a continent that is pluralist. 
a pluralist in a way that the ideological divisions of the 1960s debate, uh, on the whole, uh, were slow to acknowledge. The danger of any sort of comparative history is that you fudge differences, uh, that you iron out distinctions rather than maximize them. And I want to say, of course, I recognize um, that Russia was an autocracy and France was a republic, that they were in very different positions ideologically, that Britain had a constitutional monarchy and Germany did not. But the point I want to make is that in each of those countries, we find pockets of opinion that bear comparison with ideas entertained by elements in their future, in their future opponents. R.S. Rate. Um, who was professor of Scottish history at Glasgow University and became its principal, gave a lecture uh, at the beginning of September 1914 uh, where he acknowledged the debt owed by the world's academic community to Germany, a point reiterated throughout British universities in the autumn of 1914. In other words, there were people on the other side with whom you had a lot in common. Another Glasgow professor but by 1914 at Oxford, the classicist Gilbert Murray, and of course the man who would become a spokesman of the international order, and in many people's eyes, a pacifist, wrote in October 1914, I have just by me a letter from young Fritz Hackman, who was in Oxford last term, and brought me an introduction from a Greek scholar in Berlin. A charming letter, full of gratitude for the very small friendlinesses I have been able to show him. I remember his sunny smile and his bow with a click of his heels. He is now fighting us. And there is Paul Maas. He sent me a short time back the photograph of his baby Ulf, and we exchanged small jokes about Ulf's imperious habits. And now, of course, Maas is with his regiment, and we shall do our best to kill him, and after that to starve Ulf and Ulf's mother. Murray's observations reflect more than a common humanity and more than the fact that there were classical scholars in all armies. They reflect, too, that before 1914, liberalism, internationalism, and pacifism were not the monopolies of the victors in 1918, but these were also ideas which had adherence in Germany and Austria-Hungary as well. And by the same token, Ideas which we now associate with Germany were to be found elsewhere. Navalism, eugenics, colonialism, racial theories, militarism, anti-capitalism, anti-Semitism, all had their adherence in Britain and in France and in Russia as much as in the enemy countries. And in, within each of those original belligerents, these ideas were contested and debated. The values for which each side professed itself uniquely to be fighting after July 1914 were not universally accepted within their, the societies of each side before July 1914. These were pluralist societies, and it's worth remembering the apparent paradoxes that resulted after the war broke out. Where, for example, did the army most evidently take over the running of the country? Certainly not in Germany, where Moltke was soon sacked and Falkenhayn's power was constantly contested both by the Chancellor and by the Foreign Minister and where his survival in office became entirely dependent on the head of state, the Kaiser. France, 
was far more evidently under military control, despite the Third Republic's fear of the army, at least until 1916, with Joffre not only commander-in-chief in the field, but the governor of the military area of operations. Where was anti-Semitism most evident? Not in Germany, but in Russia, another country where the army was more firmly in the saddle in 1914-1915. Where was the legislative basis for the state's control over the lives of its individual citizens most securely in position? Again, not in Germany, where such issues were governed by the ancient and antiquated Prussian law of siege of 1851, but rather more in Britain, where the mother of parliaments enacted the Defence of the Realm Act, whose accretions would give the lie to any notion of Gladstonian liberalism. Government was more centralised, censorship more coordinated, the resources of the state more readily mobilised in both Britain and France than in Germany and in Austria-Hungary, both the latter being sprawling federal structures ill-adapted to war and prone to division. And indeed, you could argue that this very difference was a prime reason why the so-called liberal states won the war in the end. <coughs> the pluralism meant that in 1914, most citizens of Europe reacted to war exactly as most citizens reacted in 2003. And here I should confess a point. These this ideas I'm trying to express this morning were ones that I was prompted to uh, reflect on in March 2003 when I was having to speak in Glasgow City Chambers about the merits of supporting the coalition while my wife uh, was outside demonstrating against the war uh, in the streets of Glasgow. I was having to debate with Jimmy Reid, so you can imagine I didn't win. Um. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The reaction both in 1914 and, I have to say, in March 2003, within most societies to the outbreak of war, is naturally surprise and perplexity. And that, of course, if we look at those studies which have looked at crowd behaviour in 1914, beginning, of course, with Jean-Jacques Becker's uh, wonderful work on French opinion in 1914, but followed on by Geoffrey Verhey, uh, Thomas Reitel and Christoph Geinitz, uh, what you get is a sense of confusion, uncertainty, uh, genuine shock. That is the, 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 the point that Becker makes about French opinion in 1914. And that mood was also captured by the intellectuals. Let me go back to Murray again in the same article uh, written in October 1914. He compared the First World War with the last Great War. As he put it, in 1815, the nations were sick of war after long fighting. However, I doubt if there was any widespread conviction that war was itself an abomination and an outrage on humanity. Philosophers felt it, some inarticulate women and peasants and workmen felt it, 
But now such a feeling is almost universal. It commands the majority in any third-class railway carriage. It is expressed almost as a matter of course in the average newspaper. Everybody, including Germans, protested that they had been forced into this war against their better judgments. But despite all that, both sides were not only polarized within weeks, but believed themselves to be fighting for values which would brook no compromise and for which they were ready to fight to the bitter end. Spencer Wilkinson, who was the first uh, holder of the chair that I now have the privilege of holding in Oxford, uh, wrote a series of articles in the Morning Post in July and August 1914. On the 27th of July 1914, so in other words, after the uh, Austro-Hungarian ultimatum to Serbia, but of course a week before Britain was in the war, he declared that Germany was not aggressive. It has armed and made great sacrifices, believing them to be necessary for self-defense. But on the 17th of August 1914, writing in the same newspaper, Wilkinson declared that England has to see this through to the end to a peace which she can accept, even if it costs 10 years of fighting and a million men. Well, of course, he was about right on the loss of life for Britain, uh, but actually he underestimated, uh, sorry, he overestimated the length of the war. This war was actually much shorter than he anticipated, even if not much less bloody. His articles point to the first answer to the paradox I want to address. Um, and if I've got enough time, I think they're going to be eight, which is more than I can normally count to. The first answer to the paradox is that war changes everything. Now that's a statement of the blindingly obvious, but I think we too often neglect it, partly because we too often say war is the continuation of uh, policy by other means. Um, quoting uh, somebody, but misrepresenting him uh, as we do so. Um, and in a way, of course, I come back to the March 2003 analogy, we can recognize that from that experience. Most British opinion was against the invasion of Iraq in March 2003. Once British troops were committed to Iraq, the opinion polls showed, albeit not for very long, British majority support for that war. In other words, once there is a danger of people being killed, and once people are killed, then the dialogue changes. Um, the change means that uh, the war itself assumes its own political validation. And that really is my second solution to the paradox, that war is an existential act. We've become used to the idea that war is an act of policy, um, precisely because we overquote Clausewitz. But I think what we forget uh, when uh, we quote that is that that phrase was coined by Clausewitz after the Napoleonic Wars were over in the comfort of his study. He didn't actually write in his study. He wrote in his wife's dressing room. So we'll say in his wife's dressing room. Uh, that he wrote it there in moments of more tranquil reflection. In February 1812, when Prussia had been asked to produce uh, men for the French army, for Napoleon, for the invasion of Russia. Uh, Clausewitz was so angry and so determined that Prussia should fight against France and resist this demand that he says there comes a point 
where it is necessary for a nation to fight and, if necessary, die, rather than not to fight at all. That is better than humiliation and enslavement. And that motivation is also to be found in autumn 1914. To quote Gilbert Murray again, and I'm quoting him because he is so often the voice of international order and pacifism later in his life. Murray, in the autumn of 1914, in a pamphlet called How Can War Ever Be Right, condemned anti-war arguments as materialistic. He says the consequences of not fighting can be more terrible than the consequences of fighting. As he wrote, it leaves out of sight the cardinal fact that in some causes it is better to fight and be broken than to yield peacefully, that sometimes the mere act of resisting to the death is in itself a victory. And he reinforced that, as a classical scholar might well, by quoting or referring to the Greeks at Thermopylae, um, by making the point uh, that they had no idea, those who died at Thermopylae, that the consequences of their actions would be to uh, produce, ultimately, of course, uh, a successful Greek story. What I think is also striking about Murray's uh, uh, argument is that in referring to Thermopylae, he is using history, even if very ancient history, to make its point. Uh, that even annihilating defeat, as Thermopylae, of course, was for the Greeks, can ultimately provide the basis for long-term victory. Just as, of course, when Clausewitz wrote in February 1812, he did not for a moment imagine that Napoleon would be defeated uh, in that same year in Russia and ultimately defeated, finally defeated, three years later. History was important to the men and women of 1914. Uh, many people were aware that they were, in inverted commas, living history. And they used historical contexts and historical analogies to place themselves. And for the Germans, and the reason I've referred to Clausewitz, is the analogy was very often the war of German liberation against Napoleon of 1813 to 1815. And the reason for the importance of that war, and this is my third answer to the paradox, is that they saw the war against France in 1813 as a war of national self-defense, um, as a war which Germany had to fight because it had no choice. The philosopher of choice in 1813, and he became the philosopher of choice again in 1914, and significantly, of course, he had actually died during the War of uh, National Liberation wearing a uniform, even if he died of disease, uh, was Johann Gottlieb Fichte, uh, a friend of Clausewitz. But that notion that the war was a war of national self-defense self was one that all the belligerents shared in 1914. The left, before 1914, had assumed that any war in Europe would be aggressive and therefore easy to oppose, that the war would be won, fought by imperialist powers for territory, and therefore easy to rally the working classes to resist. In reality, of course, Austria-Hungary could justify this war because if Austria-Hungary did not stand up to the South Slav threat, to South Slav irredentism, then uh, the empire itself uh, would collapse 
that the external pressures on the empire will be manifested in internal disorder. And of course, after all, their heir apparent had been bumped off uh, by terrorists who were being funded and supported by Serbia itself. For Serbia, of course, it was directly a war of self-defense because Austria-Hungary invaded it. Uh, Russia might then have decided to support Serbia out of Slav solidarity, but the immediate consequence for it was also invasion by Austria-Hungary and in due course, of course, by Germany. Germany was its, in turn invaded in East Prussia by the Russians, and Belgium and France were, of course, invaded by Germany. In that story, Britain is the big exception, and that may explain why the pamphlet literature in explain, expounding the reasons for the war is so voluminous in the British case. Um, as Spencer Wilkinson put it um, on the 27th of July, 1914, England's decision is the more momentous, of course it wasn't yet clear what the decision would be, because in the balance of Europe, hers may be the determining voice. She ought to speak with greater freedom than any other nation, because in regard to the issue raised, her insular position renders her less accessible to those instant hopes and fears which cannot but affect the continental states. In other words, Britain was not invaded. Although, of course, the invasion of Belgium did go to the heart of Britain's imperial, maritime and economic interests. <coughs> Belgium uh, and the security of the Low Countries directly abutted onto the line of communications that linked Britain to its empire. And we need to remember, of course, uh, that in 1914, empire had an immediacy, unity and relevance, which we now often grapple fully to comprehend. As Murray put it, our allies had no choice. The war was, in various degrees, forced on all of them. We only, after deliberately surveying the situation, when Germany would have preferred the, for the moment not to fight us, of our free will declared war. And we were right. Fourth answer to this paradox is the effect of this crisis uh, of the war's outbreak was to neutralize those very groups who might have been expected to oppose the war. Not just socialists, but also liberalists, liberals, and of course, potential pacifists like Murray himself. Indeed, more than that happened. Uh, it was more than the fact uh, that they were neutralized, they were divided against themselves. Um, the, many of them indeed actively embraced the war by saying, of course, that the reason for fighting this war, as French socialists, many French socialists did, was the war to, was, it will be the war to end all wars. The war would create a more lasting international order. The war would extirpate militarism once and for all. Um, it would provide uh, what we would now see and reflect uh, as a very modern sense of the international order. And that leads on to the fifth point, which is that for the left, uh, many of them, saw this as a war which would clinch the case for domestic reform. At its most extreme, that argument is reflected in the Bolsheviks' hope that war would lead to revolution. The paradox of July 1914 is that many more conservative figures, not only in Russia, but also in the, in the West European states, uh, like Bettmann Holweg and like Gray, feared that war would smash the existing social order. 
the lights are going out all over Europe and so on and so forth. Um, those in Prussia who had long been uh, lobbying for German constitutional reform saw the war as the agent which might enable that reform to take place. Indeed, in Germany, the war was called a Befreiungskrieg, a war for freedom. And that meant domestic and internal freedom. It created a deliberate ambiguity because it both linked back to the war of national liberation within Germany and promised a better social order, political order within Germany. As Adolf von Harnack uh, said on the 29th of September 1914, that the war would make men equal and that in military service, Germans would find a brotherhood that suppressed selfishness. Indeed, he went so far as to claim that the ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity were not an innovation of the French Revolution, but came from Calvin, and that they had then traveled to Britain through the Puritans, from there to the United States, and then through the American Revolution to France. In other words, it was the German who thought them up um, and not the French. Um, and there was a similar idea, of course, within Russia, that this was a war uh, that would enable the liberalization of Russia, that would enable domestic reform, not just revolution, but of course those who in the end would topple the Tsar in March 1917, precisely in the name of producing a more effective state, more capable of fighting Germany. And then there is the sixth point. And that is that I think we can often underestimate the role of religion. Of course we know that those church leaders who hoped that the war would lead to a spiritual revival were proved to be wrong. But in the short term, the war did boost church attendance. In August 1914, uh, many went to church who had not been to church before. And of course you can put that uh, in the context of the threat of imminent family separation and the imminent dangers of the front line. And as Harnack put it, uh, Adolf von Harnack put it, at the end of September, spiritual ideal benefits are always only maintained as part of our characters if they are constantly renewed. Restful possession is dead possession. Man has uh, not to carry the ideal in his pocket, but to use it, every ideal which is allowed to rest becomes decrepit and worthless. The appeal to faith included an appeal to hardship, an appeal to action, an appeal to accept adversity, and that was the refrain from many pulpits at the beginning of October 1914, particularly, I have to say, within the Protestant churches. Now, and this is my seventh point, so I might just get there in a minute or two. Um, of course you may feel that what I'm saying is that this is all things uh, to all men. I've dealt with socialists, I've dealt with the problems of the, of the left, the church, and so on. And of course, in some ways, that is exactly the point, that the First World War was all things to all men. It is actually useful to say that the First World War could be interpreted in many, many ways. Um, and that was just as true when that war broke out as it did as it was when the war ended. It was, of course, in many ways, an aggregation of national wars. Um, and that sense of nationalism, 
a war of Austria-Hungary against Serbia, a war of Germany against France, but in due course, of course, a war between Russia and Turkey, between Japan and China, between Greece and Bulgaria, between Italy and Austria-Hungary. That sense of national tensions, even in some cases, of course, those people ended up on the same side, meant that it could become, the war itself could become a vehicle for a whole gamut of hopes which were themselves the reflection of European pluralism before 1914. But my final point, and I have got to number eight, really brings me back to the point about war changing things. Because what hardened those convictions into something more definite so quickly was the experience of atrocity and the reflection of atrocity. Uh, in a few weeks, Gilbert Murray wrote in August, English and German will have done each other cruel and irreparable wrongs. The blood of those we love will lie between us. We shall hear stories of horrible suffering. Atrocities will be committed by a few bad or stupid people on both sides and will be published and distorted and magnified. It will be hard to avoid them. In the Second World War, the war grew into its atrocities. In the First World War, those atrocities were committed in the opening weeks, not just in Belgium and in France, but also in East Prussia and Serbia. The war of movement and the claim of military necessity gave both the opportunity and the apparent justification for actions against non-combatants which were outside the face and pale of international law. What was important about those atrocities was not the atrocities themselves, Many people in Britain, for example, realized, not least from the knowledge of the South African war, that civilians would get killed in war and that private property would get destroyed. What was critical was the lack of any sense of guilt in the armies that stood accused of atrocities. Those armies, and particularly, of course, the German army, did not attempt to deny what they had done or to invoke the processes of military law against those who had committed those offenses, as we would do today, Instead, they invoked the argument of military necessity, and in the German case, the German academic community backed the German army in its actions, showing that Germany had been more than barbaric, as both Rate, the Scottish historian I referred to, and John Buchan, for example, wrote uh, in autumn 1914. They had been worse than that. They had retreated from being a civilized state to becoming barbaric again. As Henri Bergson, uh, the French philosopher put it in December 1914, what had happened was scientific barbarism. Perhaps we need to go no further in explaining why the big ideas of the First World War took, so quick, took hold so quickly. But in order to understand their power through the rest of the war, let me just make one final point. And it's a point, I think, that relates not just to 1914-18, but also to the power of these ideas in the later wars of the 20th century. And that is the quotations I've used today. Gilbert Murray, Adolf von Harnack, Henri Bergson, uh, to take three different national examples. That those were not written as propaganda in the sense in which I think we should understand the term more narrowly. That is to say, the torrent of words that was produced in 1914-15 was not generated by a government-orchestrated campaign. Uh, indeed, most governments were focused on suppressing 
debate on censoring. And what they published that was propaganda in 1914-15 were those yellow, blue, white books about the causes of the war, which of course saw the war in cabinet terms, in terms of diplomatic exchanges, which confronted the publics of their countries with an old idea of war, with a war generated by treaties, alliances, and diplomatic exchanges. The big ideas, the modernism of this war, were in due course incorporated in official propaganda, but they did not begin in official propaganda. They began to fill the gap left by the failure of governments to respond to the outbreak of the war, left by the failure of governments to explain what this war was about. It was at that point that newspapers, pamphlet writers, academics and other dodgy characters uh, intruded into the debate. And, of course, they did so in powers which had well-developed national presses and high levels of literacy and for whom the printed word was the principal means of communication. Um, and those words were, for that reason, extraordinarily powerful because they filled the gap in people's understanding which those people so desperately wanted. Thank you very much. was Professor Hugh Strawn. We may well broadcast some of the other talks from the event in later episodes, so do keep an ear out for that. And we're now running a regular programme of lecture evenings and day events, and you'll find details of all of those in the magazine and on our website, historyextra.com. And that's almost all for this week. Do let us know what you think. We're on email, podcast at historyextra.com. We're on Twitter at historyextra and we're on facebook.com forward slash history extra. Plus, you can keep up with our blogs, quizzes, galleries, and much more on our website, historyextra.com. Next week, we'll be talking to Johnny Johnson, Britain's last surviving member of the Dan Busters Raid, so make sure you tune in for that. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.